Section 100 of the Book of Household Management. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. The Book of Household Management by Isabella Beaton. The Rearing and Management of Children and Diseases of Infancy and Childhood. Chapter 42, Part 2. The Infant. We have already described the phenomena produced on the newborn child by the contact of air, which, after a succession of muscular twitchings, becomes endowed with voice, and heralds its event by a loud but brief succession of cries. But though this is the general rule, it sometimes happens, from causes it is unnecessary here to explain, that the infant does not cry, or give utterance to any audible sounds, or if it does, they are so faint as scarcely to be distinguished as human accents plainly indicating that life, as yet, to the new visitor, is neither a boon nor a blessing, the infant being, in fact, in a state of suspended or imperfect vitality, a state of quasi-existence, closely approximating the condition of a stillbirth. As soon as this state of things is discovered, the child should be turned on its right side, and the whole length of the spine, from the head downwards, rubbed with all the fingers of the right hand, sharply and quickly, without intermission, till the quick action has not only evoked heat, but electricity in the part, until the loud and sharp cries of the child have thoroughly expanded the lungs, and satisfactorily established its life. The operation will seldom require above a minute to effect, and less frequently demands a repetition. If there is brandy at hand, the fingers before rubbing may be dipped into that or any other spirit. There is another condition of what we may call mute births, where the child only makes short, ineffectual gasps, and those at intervals of a minute or two apart, when the lips, eyelids, and fingers become of a deep purple or slate color, sometimes half the body remaining white, while the other half, which was at first swarthy, deepens to a livid hue. This condition of the infant is owing to the valve between the two sides of the heart remaining open, and allowing the unvitalized venous blood to enter the arteries, and get into the circulation. The object in this case, as in the previous one, is to dilate the lungs as quickly as possible, so that by the sudden effect of a vigorous inspiration the valve may be firmly closed, and the impure blood, losing this means of egress, may be sent directly to the lungs. The same treatment is therefore necessary as in the previous case, with the addition, if the friction along the spine has failed, of a warm bath at a temperature of about 80 degrees, in which the child is to be plunged up to the neck, first cleansing the mouth and nostrils of the mucus that might interfere with the free passage of air. Well in the bath, the friction along the spine is to be continued, and if the lungs still remain unexpended, while one person retains the child in an inclined position in the water, Another should insert the pipe of a small pair of bellows into one nostril, and while the mouth is closed and the other nostril compressed on the pipe with the hand of the assistant, the lungs are to be slowly inflated by steady puffs of air from the bellows, the hand being removed from the mouth and nose after each inflation, and placed on the pit of the stomach, and by a steady pressure expelling it out again through by the mouth. This process is to be continued, steadily inflating and expelling the air from the lungs, till, with a sort of tremulous leap, nature takes up the process, and the infant begins to gasp, and finally to cry, at first low and faint, but with every gulp of air increasing in length and strength of volume, when it is to be removed from the water, and instantly wrapped, all but the face and mouth, 
in a flannel. Sometimes, however, all these means will fail in effecting an utterance from the child, which will lie with livid lips and a flaccid body, every few minutes opening its mouth with a short gasping pant, and then subsiding into a state of pulseless inaction, lingering probably some hours, till the spasmodic pantings grow further apart, it ceases to exist. The time that this state of negative vitality will linger in the frame of an infant is remarkable, and even when all the previous operations, though long continued, have proved ineffectual, the child will often rally from the simplest of means, the application of dry heat. When removed from the bath, place three or four hot bricks or tiles on the hearth, and lay the child, loosely folded in a flannel, on its back along them, taking care that there is but one fold of flannel between the spine and the heated bricks or tiles. When neither of these articles can be procured, place a few clear pieces of red cinder in a warming pan, and extend the child in the same manner along the closed lid. As the heat gradually diffuses itself over the spinal marrow, the child that was dying, or seemingly dead, will frequently give a sudden and energetic cry, succeeded in another minute by a long and vigorous peal, making up in volume and force for the previous delay, and instantly confirming its existence by every effort in its nature. With these two exceptions, restored by the means we have pointed out to the functions of life, we will proceed to the consideration of the child healthily born. Here the first thing that meets us on the threshold of inquiry, and what is often between mother and nurse not only a vexed question, but one of vexatious import, is the crying of the child. The mother, in her natural anxiety, maintaining that her infant must be ill to cause it to cry so much or so often, and the nurse insisting that all children cry, and that nothing is the matter with it, and that crying does good, and is indeed an especial benefit to infancy. The anxious and unfamiliar mother, though not convinced by these abstract sayings of the truth or wisdom of the explanation, takes both for granted, and giving the nurse credit for more knowledge and experience on this head than she can have, contentedly resigns herself to the infliction, as a thing necessary to be endured for the good of the baby, but thinking it at the same time an extraordinary instance of the imperfectibility of nature as regards the human infant, for her mind wanders to what she has observed in her childhood with puppies and kittens, who, except when rudely torn from their nurse, seldom give utterance to any complaining. We undoubtedly believe that crying, to a certain extent, is not only conducive to health, but positively necessary to the full development and physical economy of the infant's being. But though holding this opinion, we are far from believing that a child does not very often cry from pain, thirst, want of food, and attention to its personal comfort. But there is as much difference in the tone and expression of a child's cry as in the notes of an adult's voice. And the mother's ear will not be long in discriminating between the sharp, peevish whine of irritation and fever, and the louder, intermitting cry that characterizes the want of sleep and warmth. All these shades of expression in the child's inarticulate voice every nurse should understand, and every mother will soon teach herself to interpret them with an accuracy equal to language. There is no part of a woman's duty to her child that a young mother should so soon make it her business to study as the voice of her infant, and the language conveyed in its cry. The study is neither hard nor difficult. A close attention to its tone, and the expression of the baby's features, are the two most important points demanding attention. 
The key to both the mother will find in her own heart, and the knowledge of her success in the comfort and smile of her infant. We have two reasons, both strong ones, for urging on mothers the imperative necessity of early making themselves acquainted with the nature and wants of their child. The first, that when left to the entire responsibility of the baby, after the departure of the nurse, she may be able to undertake her new duties with more confidence than if left to her own resources and mother's instinct, without a clue to guide her through the mysteries of those calls that vibrate through every nerve of her nature, and secondly, that she may be able to guard her child from the nefarious practices of unprincipled nurses, who, while calming the mother's mind with false statements as to the character of the baby's cries, rather than lose their rest, or devote that time which would remove the cause of the suffering, administer behind the curtains those deadly narcotics which, while stupefying nature into sleep, ensure for herself a night of many unbroken hours. Such nurses as have not the hardihood to dose their infant charges are often full of other schemes to still that constant and reproachful cry. The most frequent means employed for this purpose is giving it something to suck, something easily hid from the mother, or when that is impossible, under the plea of keeping it warm, the nurse covers it in her lap with a shawl, and under this blind surreptitiously inserts a finger between the parched lips, which possibly moan for drink, and under this inhuman cheat and delusion the infant is pacified, till nature, balked of its desires, drops into a troubled sleep. These are two of our reasons for impressing upon mothers the early, the immediate necessity of putting themselves sympathetically in communication with their child, by at once learning its hidden language as a delightful task. We must strenuously warn all mothers on no account to allow the nurse to sleep with the baby, never herself to lay down with it by her side for a night's rest, never to let it sleep in the parent's bed, and on no account keep it longer than absolutely necessary, confined in on atmosphere loaded with the breath of many adults. The amount of oxygen required by an infant is so large, and the quantity consumed by mid-life and age, and the proportion of carbonic acid thrown off from both, so considerable, that an infant breathing the same air cannot possibly carry on its healthy existence, while deriving its vitality from so corrupted a medium. This objection, always in force, is still more objectionable at night-time, when doors and windows are closed, and amounts to a condition of poison when placed between two adults in sleep, and shut in by bed-curtains, and when, in addition to the impurities expired from the lungs, we remember in quiescence and sleep how large a portion of mephitic gas is given off from the skin. Mothers, in the fullness of their affection, believe there is no harbour, sleeping or awake, where their infants can be so secure from all possible or probable danger as in their own arms. Yet we should astound our readers if we told them the statistical number of infants who, in despite of their motherly solicitude and love, are annually killed unwittingly by such parents themselves, and this from the persistency in the practice we are so strenuously condemning. The mother frequently, on awaking, discovers the baby's face closely impacted between her bosom and her arm, and its body rigid and lifeless, or else so enveloped in the head-blanket and superincumbent bedclothes as to render breathing a matter of physical impossibility. In such cases the jury in general returns a verdict of accidentally overlaid, but one of careless suffocation would be more in accordance with truth and justice. The only possible excuse that can be urged, either by nurse or mother, for this culpable practice, 
is the plea of imparting warmth to the infant, but this can always be effected by an extra blanket in the child's crib, or if the weather is particularly cold, by a bottle of hot water, enveloped in flannel and placed at the child's feet. While all the objections already urged, as derivable from animal heat imparted by actual contact, are entirely obviated. There is another evil attending the sleeping together of the mother and infant, which as far as regards the latter we consider quite as formidable, though not so immediate as the others, and is always followed by more or less of mischief to the mother. The evil we now allude to is that most injurious practice of letting the child suck after the mother has fallen asleep, a custom that naturally results from the former, and which, as we have already said, is injurious to both mother and child. It is injurious to the child by allowing it, without control, to imbibe to distension a fluid sluggishly secreted and deficient in those vital principles which the want of mental energy and of the sympathetic appeals of the child on the mother so powerfully produce on the secreted nutriment, while the mother wakes in a state of clammy exhaustion, with giddiness, dimness of sight, nausea, loss of appetite, and a dull aching pain through the back and between the shoulders. In fact, she wakes languid and unrefreshed from her sleep, with febrile symptoms and hectic flushes, caused by her baby vampire, who, while dragging from her her health and strength, has excited in itself a set of symptoms directly opposite, but fraught with the same injurious consequences, functional derangement. THE MILK As nature has placed in the bosom of the mother the natural food of her offspring, it must be self-evident to every reflecting woman that it becomes her duty to study, as far as lies in her power, to keep that reservoir of nourishment in as pure and invigorating a condition as possible, for she must remember that the quantity is no proof of the quality of this aliment. The mother, while suckling, as a general rule, should avoid all sedentary occupations, take regular exercise, keep her mind as lively and pleasingly occupied as possible, especially by music and singing. Her diet should be light and nutritious, with a proper sufficiency of animal food, and of that kind which yields the largest amount of nourishment. And unless the digestion is naturally strong, vegetables and fruit should form a very small proportion of the general dietary, and such preparations as broths, gruels, arrowroot, etc., still less. Tapioca, or ground rice pudding, made with several eggs, may be taken freely, but all slops and thin potations, such as that delusion called chicken broth, should be avoided, as yielding a very small amount of nutriment, and a large proportion of flatulence. All purely stimulants should be avoided as much as possible, especially spirits, unless taken for some special object, and that medicinally. But as part of the dietary they should be carefully shunned. Lactation is always an exhausting process, and as the child increases in size and strength, the drain upon the mother becomes great and depressing. Then something more even than an abundant diet is required to keep the mind and body up to a standard sufficiently healthy to admit of a constant and nutritious secretion being performed without detriment to the physical integrity of the mother, or injury to the child who imbibes it. And as stimulants are inadmissible, if not positively injurious, the substitute required is to be found in malt liquor. To the lady accustomed to her Madeira and Sherry, this may appear a very vulgar potation for a delicate young mother to take instead of the more subtle and condensed elegance of wine. 
but as we are writing from experience, and with the avowed object of imparting useful facts and beneficial remedies to our readers, we allow no social distinctions to interfere with our legitimate object. We have already said that the suckling mother should avoid stimulants, especially spiritous ones, and though something of this sort is absolutely necessary to support her strength during the exhausting process, it should be rather of a tonic than of a stimulating character. And as all wines contain a large percentage of brandy, they are on that account less beneficial than the pure juice of the fermented grape might be. But there is another consideration to be taken into account on this subject. The mother has not only to think of herself, but also of her infant. Now wines, especially port wine, very often, indeed most frequently, affect the baby's bowels, and what might have been grateful to the mother becomes thus a source of pain and irritation to the child afterwards. Sherry is less open to this objection than other wines, yet still it very frequently does influence the second participator, or the child whose mother has taken it. The nine or twelve months a woman usually suckles must be, to some extent, to most mothers, a period of privation and penance, and unless she is deaf to the cries of her baby, and insensible to its kicks and plunges, and will not see in such muscular evidences the griping pains that rack her child, she will avoid every article that can remotely affect the little being who draws its sustenance from her. She will see that the babe is acutely affected by all that in any way influences her, and willingly curtail her own enjoyments rather than see her infant rendered feverish, irritable, and uncomfortable. As the best tonic, then, and the most efficacious indirect stimulant that a mother can take at such times, there is no potation equal to porter and stout, or, what is better still, an equal part of porter and stout. Ale, except for a few constitutions, is too subtle and too sweet, generally causing acidity or heartburn, and stout alone is too potent to admit of a full draught, from its proneness to affect the head, and quantity as well as moderate strength is required to make the draught effectual. The equal mixture, therefore, of stout and porter, yields all the properties desired or desirable as a medicinal agent for this purpose. Independently of its invigorating influence on the constitution, porter exerts a marked and specific effect on the secretion of milk. More powerful in exciting an abundant supply of that fluid than any other article within the range of the physician's art, and in cases of deficient quantity, is the most certain, speedy, and the healthiest means that can be employed to ensure a quick and abundant flow. In cases where malt liquor produces flatulency, a few grains of the carbonate of soda may advantageously be added to each glass immediately before drinking, which will have the effect of neutralizing any acidity that may be in the porter at the time, and will also prevent its after disagreement with the stomach. The quantity to be taken must depend upon the natural strength of the mother, the age and demand made by the infant on the parent, and other causes, but the amount should vary from one to two pints a day never taking less than half a pint at a time, which should be repeated three or four times a day. We have said that this period of suckling is a season of penance to the mother, but this is not invariably the case, and as so much must depend upon the natural strength of the stomach, and its power of assimilating all kinds of food into healthy chyle, it is impossible to define exceptions. Where a woman feels she can eat any kind of food without inconvenience or detriment, she should live during her suckling as she did before. But as a general rule, we are bound to advise all mothers to abstain from such articles as pickles, fruits, cucumbers, 
and all acid and slowly digestible foods, unless they wish for restless nights and crying infants. As regards exercise and amusement, we would certainly neither prohibit a mother's dancing, going to a theatre, nor even from attending an assembly. The first, however, is the best indoor recreation she can take, and a young mother will do well to often amuse herself in the nursery with this most excellent means of healthful circulation. The only precaution necessary is to avoid letting the child suck the milk that has lain long in the breast, or is heated by excessive action. Every mother who can should be provided with a breast pump, or glass tube, to draw off the superabundance that has been accumulating in her absence from the child, or the first gush excited by undue exertion. The subsequent supply of milk will be secreted under the invigorating influence of a previous healthy stimulus. As the first milk that is secreted contains a large amount of the saline elements, and is thin and innutritious, it is most admirably adapted for the purpose nature designed it to fulfill, that of an apparent, but which unfortunately is seldom permitted in our artificial mode of living to perform. So opposed are we to the objectionable plan of physicking newborn children, that unless for positive illness we would much rather advise that medicine should be administered through the mother for the first eight or ten weeks of its existence. This practice, which few mothers will object to, is easily effected by the parent, when such a course is necessary for the child, taking either a dose of castor oil, half an ounce of tasteless salts, the phosphate of soda, one or two teaspoonfuls of magnesia, a dose of lenitive electuary, manna, or any mild and simple apparent, which, almost before it can have taken effect on herself, will exhibit its action on her child. One of the most common errors that mothers fall into while suckling their children is that of fancying they are always hungry, and constantly overfeeding them, and with this the great mistake of applying the child to the breast on every occasion of its crying, without investigating the cause of its complaint, and under the belief that it wants food, putting the nipple into its crying mouth, until the infant turns in revulsion and petulance from what it should accept with eagerness and joy. At such times a few teaspoonfuls of water, slightly chilled, will often instantly pacify a crying or restless child, who has turned in loathing from the offered breast, or after imbibing a few drops, and finding it not what nature craved, throws back its head in disgust, and cries more petulantly than before. In such a case as this, the young mother, grieved at her baby's rejection of the tempting present, and distressed at its cries, and in terror of some injury, over and over ransacks its clothes, believing some insecure pin can alone be the cause of such sharp complaining, an accident that, from her own care in dressing, however, is seldom or ever the case. These abrupt cries of the child, if they do not proceed from thirst, which a little water will relieve, not unfrequently occur from some unequal pressure, a fold or twist in the roller, or some constriction round the tender body. If this is suspected, the mother must not be content with merely slackening the strings. The child should be undressed, and the creases and folds of the hot skin, especially those about the thighs and groins, examined, to see that no powder has caked, and becoming hard, irritated the parts. The violet powder should be dusted freely over all, to cool the skin, and everything put on fresh and smooth. If such precautions have not afforded relief, and in addition to the crying the child plunges or draws up its legs, the mother may be assured some cause of irritation exists in the stomach or bowels, either acidity in the latter or distension from overfeeding in the former. 
but from whichever cause the child should be opened before the fire, and a heated napkin applied all over the abdomen, the infant being occasionally elevated to a sitting position, and while gently jolted on the knee, the back should be lightly patted with the hand. Should the mother have any reason to apprehend that the cause of inconvenience proceeds from the bladder, a not unfrequent source of pain, the napkin is to be dipped in hot water, squeezed out, and immediately applied over the part, and repeated every eight or ten minutes for several times in succession, either till the natural relief is afforded, or a cessation of pain allows for its discontinuance. The pain that young infants often suffer, and the crying that results from it, is, as we have already said, frequently caused by the mother inconsiderately overfeeding her child, and is produced by the pain of distension, and the mechanical pressure of a larger quantity of fluid in the stomach than the gastric juice can convert into cheese and digest. Some children are stronger in the enduring power of the stomach than others, and get rid of the excess by vomiting, concluding every process of suckling by an emission of milk and curd. Such children are called by nurses thriving children, and generally they are so, simply because their digestion is good, and they have the power of expelling with impunity that superabundance of aliment, which in others is a source of distension, flatulence, and pain. The length of time an infant should be suckled must depend much on the health and strength of the child, and the health of the mother, and the quantity and quality of her milk. Though when all circumstances are favorable, it should never be less than nine, nor exceed fifteen months. But perhaps the true time will be found in the medium between both. But of this we may be sure, that nature never ordained a child to live on suction after having endowed it with teeth to bite and to grind, and nothing is more out of place and unseemly than to hear a child with a set of twenty teeth ask for the breast. The practice of protracted wet nursing is hurtful to the mother, by keeping up an uncalled-for, and after the proper time an unhealthy drain on her system, while the child either derives no benefit from what it no longer requires, or it produces a positive injury on its constitution. After the period when nature has ordained the child shall live by other means, the secretion of milk becomes thin and deteriorated, showing in the flabby flesh and puny features of the child both its loss of nutritious properties and the want of more stimulating aliment. Though we have said that twelve months is about the medium time a baby should be suckled, we by no means wish to imply that a child should be fed exclusively on milk for its first year. Quite the reverse. The infant can hardly be too soon made independent of the mother. Thus, should illness assail her, her milk fail, or any domestic cause abruptly cut off the natural supply, the child having been annealed to an artificial diet, its life might be safely carried on without seeking for a wet nurse, and without the slightest danger to its system. The advantage to the mother of early accustoming the child to artificial food is as considerable to herself as beneficial to her infant. The demand on her physical strength in the first instance will be less severe and exhausting. The child will sleep longer on a less rapidly digestible aliment, and yield to both more quiet nights, and the mother will be more at liberty to go out for business or pleasure, another means of sustenance being at hand till her return. Besides these advantages, by a judicious blending of the two systems of feeding, the infant will acquire greater constitutional strength, so that if attacked by sickness or disease it will have a much greater chance of resisting its virulence than if dependent alone on the mother, whose milk, affected by fatigue and the natural anxiety of the parent for her offspring, 
is at such a time neither good in its properties, nor likely to be beneficial to the patient. All that we have further to say on suckling is an advice to mothers, that if they wish to keep a sound and unchapped nipple, and possibly avoid what is called a broken breast, never to put it up with a wet nipple, but always to have a soft handkerchief in readiness, and the moment that delicate part is drawn from the child's mouth, to dry it carefully of the milk and saliva that moisten it, and further to make a practice of suckling from each breast alternately. Dress and Dressing washing, etc. As respects the dress and dressing of a newborn infant, or of a child in arms, during any stage of its nursing, there are few women who will require us to give them guidance or direction for their instruction. And though a few hints on the subject may not be out of place here, yet most women intuitively take to a baby, and with a small amount of experience are able to perform all the little offices necessary to its comfort and cleanliness, with ease and completeness. We shall therefore on this delicate subject hold our peace, and only from afar hint at what we would, leaving our suggestions to be approved or rejected, according as they chime with the judgment and apprehension of our motherly readers. In these days of intelligence there are few ladies who have not, in all probability, seen the manner in which the Indian squaw, the aborigines of Polynesia, and even the Lap and Eskimo, strap down their baby on a board, and by means of a loop suspend it to the bough of a tree, hang it up to the rafters of the hut, or on travel dangle it on their backs, outside the domestic implements, which, as the slave of her master, man, the wronged but uncomplaining woman carries, in order that her lord may march in unhampered freedom. Cruel and confining as this system of backboard dressing may seem to our modern notions of freedom and exercise, it is positively less irksome, less confining, and infinitely less prejudicial to health, than the mummying of children by our grandmothers a hundred, aye fifty years ago, for what with chin stays, back stays, body stays, forehead cloths, rollers, bandages, etc., an infant had as many girths and strings to keep head, limbs, and body in one exact position as a ship has halyards. Much of this, indeed we may say all, has been abolished, but still the child is far from being dressed loosely enough and we shall never be satisfied till the abominable use of the pin is avoided in toto in an infant's dressing, and a texture made for all the undergarments of a child of a cool and elastic material. The manner in which an infant is encircled in a bandage called the roller, as if it had fractured ribs, compressing those organs, that living on suction must be for the health of the child to a certain degree distended, to obtain sufficient aliment from the fluid imbibed, is perfectly preposterous. Our humanity, as well as our duty, calls upon us at once to abrogate and discountenance by every means in our power. Instead of the process of washing and dressing being made, as with the adults, a refreshment and comfort, it is, by the dawdling manner in which it is performed, the multiplicity of things used, and the perpetual change of position of the infant to adjust its complicated clothing, rendered an operation of positive irritation and annoyance. We therefore entreat all mothers to regard this subject in its true light, and to study to the utmost simplicity in dress, and dispatch in the process. Children do not so much cry from the washing as from the irritation caused by the frequent change of position in which they are placed, the number of times they are turned on their face, on their back, and on their side, by the manipulations demanded by the multiplicity of articles to be fitted, tacked, and carefully adjusted on their bodies. 
What mother ever found her girl of six or seven stand quiet while she was curling her hair? How many times nightly has she not to reprove her for not standing still during the process? It is the same with the unconscious infant, who cannot bear to be moved about, and who has no sooner grown reconciled to one position than it is forced reluctantly into another. It is true, in one instance the child has intelligence to guide it, and in the other not. But the motatory nerves, in both instances, resent coercion, and a child cannot be too little handled. On this account alone, and for the moment setting health and comfort out of the question, we beg mothers to simplify their baby's dress as much as possible, and not only to put on as little as is absolutely necessary, but to make that as simple in its contrivance and adjustment as it will admit of, to avoid belly-bands, rollers, girths, and everything that can impede or confine the natural expansion of the digestive organs, on the due performance of whose function the child lives, thrives, and develops its physical being. End of section 100